Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, June 30th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topshur with today's headlines. A UK court rules against deporting migrants to Rwanda. The Supreme Court says race-conscious college admission policies are illegal. Rudy Giuliani is interviewed in the 2020 election interference investigation. A former Ohio House speaker is sentenced to prison for bribery. Iran takes Canada to international court for violating its sovereignty. A Russian general is arrested following the Wagner Rebellion. The Solomon Islands and Australia renew their security pact. An inquiry finds UK spy cops operations were unjustified. Several countries condemn the desecration of a Quran in Sweden. And Canada faces its most severe wildfire season on record. In our first story, a UK court rules against the Rwanda deportation plan. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Reuters, the Associated Press, BBC News, The Guardian, and Al Jazeera. In a three-judge decision, the UK Court of Appeal ruled Thursday against a policy to send asylum seekers illegally arriving in the UK to Rwanda as a safe third country, dealing a blow to the Conservative government's effort to curb illegal immigration. UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak says his government will appeal the decision to the UK Supreme Court. Stopping migrant boats is one of Sunak's five top priorities. Last year, the UK and Rwandan governments agreed to a deal that would send illegal migrants coming to the UK as stowaways or in small boats to Rwanda, where their asylum claims would be processed. However, human rights groups argue Rwanda isn't a safe third country. Thursday's decision reversed a high court ruling that upheld the Rwanda plan's legality. Despite already sending £140 million, or $170 million, to Rwanda, the UK hasn't deported a single migrant as the plan has been tied up in legal challenges. While the appeal court did not rule that the UK cannot send migrants to a safe third country, it didn't believe that Rwanda was capable of making sound decisions on asylum claims and was capable of sending migrants back to their home countries, which violates Article 3 of the European Convention on Human Rights. Rwanda's government criticized the decision, claiming that it's one of the safest countries in the world. All right, on this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Those were the facts. Our first narrative spin is the left narrative from The Guardian. The UK's illegal immigration bill is inhumane and the appeals court was right to strike it down. Asylum seekers sent to Rwanda would undoubtedly receive unfair hearings and could be sent back to their dangerous countries of origin. The decision also deals a major blow to Sunak's failing government, showing the conservatives that they cannot defy international human rights laws. This decision is great news for asylum seekers coming to the UK to flee opposition and seek a better life. And here's the right narrative from The Spectator. This is neither a political victory nor a win for the British people. First, the decision doesn't deal a blow to Sunak's common-sense illegal immigration bill that will keep the UK safe and prevent human trafficking, as it only deals with a small portion relating specifically to Rwanda. And second... Illegal migrants pouring into the UK in small boats via organized crime trafficking networks are not good for the country. The government must act decisively to stem illegal immigration. 
The Supreme Court rules against affirmative action in higher education. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by The New York Times, The Hill, Washington Post, Politico, and CNN. On Thursday, the Supreme Court ruled that the race-conscious admissions policies of Harvard and the University of North Carolina, or UNC, are unlawful, effectively ending the consideration of race during college admissions. The ruling in the UNC case was 6-3, to and 6-2 to in the Harvard case, with Justice Kentaji Brown-Jackson recusing herself from the latter. Writing for the majority, Chief Justice John Roberts found that the two universities violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment and the 1964 Civil Rights Act, failing to meet standards set by the court. The majority opinion, however, claimed that an applicant's experience with racial issues, for example, could still be considered. The plaintiff, advocacy group Students for Fair Admissions, accused Harvard and UNC of discrimination against Asian American and white students. Meanwhile, the colleges argued that they were justified in using race as one of many factors in evaluating an applicant to increase diversity on campus, permitted under SCOTUS's 2003 Grutter v. Bollinger decision. The repercussions of the ruling on education and employment are likely to be determined in future litigation. Thank you for those facts, Scott, and we'll begin this round with a left narrative spin from The Guardian. The court has effectively forced a naive, colorblind interpretation of the Constitution on a country that has systematic barriers against people of color. American colleges are on the front line of this fight as they educate the next generation of leaders, with the court slamming the door on the opportunity many of these students had for a better life. Make no mistake, this case pitted racial minorities against one another in an effort to appease those uncomfortable with racial justice. And we have a right narrative spin from The Federalist. The choice in this matter is simple. Either we are all equal, or some of us are more equal than others. In their vague, feel-good push for diversity, elite colleges excluded Asian American and white applicants for the sake of less qualified candidates, using a whole-person admissions process as a means to racially discriminate. Our society is built on awards based on merit, not sentimental social engineering, and using race was the wrong tool to help guarantee diversity of experience on campus, which can be done without discrimination. I mean, on a super, totally low stakes, dumb level, like good luck getting into an improv thing if you're a white guy in Seattle, you know, like at this point, I think I was the last <laughs> white guy cast ever. Like that was, I was the last person let into Disneyland, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, there's de- mean, there definitely has been a push for a less white cast. Yeah, but, which, which by the way, I think is a good thing, but that being said, good luck if you're a right. white guy, you know, well, like it, it kind of, you know, it makes, it makes you understand, well, the, the white male anger right now, you know, it's a little misguided, yes. but I, but I can understand on a human level of like, if suddenly five foot three quarter Japanese white women were being like, yeah, right. you Get have too much. Yeah, yeah, we have no. too many of these. Yeah. Oh, you're well, only I'm five person. foot three. I feel like you're taller than that. Well, I stand tall, Scott. Giuliani is interviewed in the 2020 U.S. election interference probe. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, The New York Times, The Daily Mail, CBS, and The Independent. Rudy Giuliani, who was once former President Donald Trump's personal attorney, was reportedly interviewed in recent weeks by federal investigators working on special counsel Jack Smith's probe into Trump's alleged efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. 
Ted Goodman, a political advisor to Giuliani, confirmed it was a voluntary and professional interview. It also occurred under a proffer agreement where prosecutors allow people to tell their side of a story without fear of having their words used against them in a criminal case, unless they're caught lying. Giuliani was part of Trump's post-election legal team and was instrumental in multiple failed legal challenges to stop the certification of President Joe Biden's victory. Although details of the interview have been kept private, Giuliani was reportedly asked about fundraising and meetings that happened between Election Day 2020 and January 6, 2021, especially meetings that took place in the White House. As Smith continues to work on the 2020 election case, he also filed charges against Trump earlier this month related to the potential mishandling of classified documents after the former president left office. We've got a pro-Trump narrative from Washington Examiner. No one knows what Giuliani said in his interview, so any assumptions about him turning on Trump are baseless. Obviously, Giuliani had knowledge of the plans to present alternate electors if VP Pence didn't certify the questionable election results. He also could have explained that Trump was concerned with evidence of voter fraud that was being shown to him. There's an anti-Trump narrative from Raw Story. Few people were as close to Trump during his attempts to overturn the election or have done more to spread Trump's lies about the 2020 election being stolen than Giuliani. So it's no surprise he's among a host of people being questioned by Smith. If he chooses to be on the right side of history and come clean about Trump's nefarious plans, he could save both himself and American democracy. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 34% chance that Trump will be jailed or incarcerated before the year 2030. Melissa, I was listening to an interview with Nicolas Cage. Oh, tell me more. And he was saying, and the the person kind of floated the idea that he did a lot of bad movies for a long time. Uh, And he said, that's right, I did. And uh, he said, I got all kind of turned around with the IRS and debt and various, you know, Mm. money problems. And then I just had to make movies. You know, the the best way for me to make money and get that right is to make movies. If you're Nicholas Cage. He was just hustling. He was just getting to work. He's just hustling and making as many movies as he can. Yeah. Working extra hours. At the expense of how good the movies, the selection of what the movie was. At the expense of viewers and and Cage fans everywhere. Yes, that's right. Perhaps we can draw a comparison to Giuliani here. Like, why is mm. he doing all this weird stuff? Perhaps he's jammed up financially or in some other way. Maybe that's why. Do you mean why was he supporting Trump um, well, without why question is he- or why is he talking? All, all every like why is why are we hearing so much about Giuliani? Why is he even Donald Trump's per, why is he anyone's personal attorney? Quite frankly, like like right. for, forget about Trump. Like you would think a guy that nearly successfully became the nominee for president, you know, America's mayor, all this stuff, he's making money all along the way. I feel like he doesn't need to be someone's personal attorney, even mm. if it's Trump. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't need to be, there must be a reason why he's doing these things and it being turned around financially is a possibility, especially with the IRS or something. I don't know. That's but good. If you're and, trying and to explain these things. I think that's a really good things, theory because that then, you know, that person's not going to want to talk about it publicly. Yeah. Either. And, and the, okay, how can he make a bunch of money as quick as possible? Well, I guess I'll just, you know, be a public figure and be a punching bag and be a whatever. Right. Um, like, oh, being, being a lawyer 
is pretty lucrative. Let me go do that. Going back to Nicolas Cage, how did he get $100 million in debt to the IRS? Or like, what happened? And, you know, I, my experience, again, at the very, very bottom of the entertainment show business ladder, like one time I got paid $5,000 for a project for an afternoon of work. And that was the best I've ever done on anything to this day. And I had like $4,800 in, you know, high interest credit cards. And I just like, well, let me pay these off and then I'll figure out whatever else later. That's a good idea. And it was, you know, from that point of view, it makes sense. But the problem is like, I owed like 2,400 bucks in taxes on that five grand. Oh, (laughs) so I, at that moment I paid off the thing and then I needed to get 2,400 bucks in taxes. Now I'm behind but I'm not going to make five grand again. That was the best project right. I ever did. Yeah. So, and then even if I make $2,400 on another project, I still owe the taxes on that 2,400. So you basically need to get another one of your original best project and then pay all taxes with it to get back to zero, which is right. not easy to do. So if you're Nicolas Cage and you're getting paid $20 million for a movie, you can I can see how you get kind of out of whack if you don't stay ahead of it, if you don't have people, you know, keeping you yeah. ahead of what you're supposed to be doing. Well, well, what we can all learn from here from Nicolas Cage is to set your taxes aside into a separate account that you don't get to use so that you can pay them at the end of the year. That is what you should do. If you are, uh, if, if you're you Nicolas are Cage, a, if you're a, if you're a Nicolas Cage or star, me for that, for that or matter, Scott, or, you know, the star anchor of improve the news Go uh, on. videos. Mm-hmm. You know, thank you. you. You better just be putting some nest egg aside because, you know, I I am now. But when you have a, you know, a 21 percent credit card burning a hole in your soul, like it makes sense. Like, can I just get rid of this and then figure it out later? Um, oh, I get it. I get it. I've done that, too. I've done that, too. Like, oh, yeah, yeah I paid that off. And now I have no money. Right. And so I am now a, I'm going to use another credit card. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Find a better interest rate. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there you go. A former Ohio House speaker is sentenced for a $60 million bribery scheme. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by the New York Times, Associated Press, The Inquirer, and WOUB Public Media. Former GOP Speaker of the House of Representatives Larry Householder was sentenced to 20 years in prison on Thursday for his role in what prosecutors have called potentially the largest corruption scandal in the history of Ohio. The state alleged that the First Energy Corporation funneled $60 million to Householder in exchange for him rushing through the House, a bill that granted the company a bailout for two of the company's nuclear energy plants worth $1.3 billion in 2019. Five individuals were charged in connection with a federal investigation still ongoing. U.S. District Judge Timothy Black called Householder a bully with a lust for power at the hearing sentencing the 64-year-old to 20 years in prison with a year of probation. The defense had requested a sentence of 12 to 18 months. Householder and ex-GOP state chair Matt Borges were found guilty three months ago. A former strategist and a lobbyist both pleaded guilty to the charges in 2020 and testified against Householder and Borges, with First Energy admitting that it bribed Householder in 2021, paying a $230 million fine. First investigated by the FBI in 2004 for suspected kickbacks, Householder had First Energy reportedly funnel money into his dark money group, Generation Now. 
The group bankrolled allied politicians, public relations campaigns for the nuclear bailout, and a term limit campaign that would have benefited Householder and his allies. Householder said in court that he plans to appeal his conviction. Borges is set to be sentenced on Friday for offering a bribe to a campaign operative to gain insight into the referendum campaign to repeal the first energy bailout. We have a few political narratives on this story. We'll start with the Democratic spin, and this comes from New Republic. This is yet another example of the Republican rot that has taken hold in state and local governments across the country. While the first energy bailout was immensely unpopular with Ohio voters of all political stripes, the Republicans have continued to obstruct efforts to fully repeal the legislation, meaning Ohio's taxpayers are still paying for this dirty deal. Ohio is a profoundly gerrymandered state, and the GOP has gotten far too comfortable in power, with many of them implicated in the scandal, even if they were never charged. And Cleveland.com brings us the Republican narrative. Let's not forget that the bailout would not have passed without the support of Democrats at the State House, and Householder was only able to hold on to the Speaker's gavel for so long because of them. It was also a Democrat speaker who established the powers that gave speakers inordinate power over the state government, power that enabled Householder in his situation. Democrats also bear some responsibility for their carelessness in enabling Householder over the years. I'd like to think that I would have the moral fortitude to not be tempted by $60 million in personal gain to monkey around with some sort of legislation or something, but I'm not positive. You know, I I don't know if I have that level of, I think, what do you think? What would happen? Are you confident that you wouldn't take the $60 million? There's a lyric in a Flaming Lips song that says, you cannot really know yourself and what you'd really do with all your power. Iran takes Canada to UN court over civil damages claims. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, ABC News, The National, Al-Arabia, and Al Jazeera. Iran filed a case at the International Court of Justice, or ICJ, Wednesday against Canada, accusing it of violating the Islamic nation's state immunity by allowing its citizens to sue Tehran for alleged terrorist acts. In an official filing, Iran said that Canada is obliged to respect the jurisdictional immunity which Iran enjoys under international law and shouldn't allow civilian claims against Iran for alleged support to or acts of terrorism. Iran demanded that Canada compensate Tehran for the violation of its international obligations and asked the ICJ to tell Ottawa to overrule any judgments against Iran in Canadian courts. Canada didn't immediately react to the filing. Canada listed Iran as a state sponsor of terror in 2012 and broke diplomatic ties as tensions rose regarding Tehran's support for the Syrian government during the country's civil war, Iran's nuclear program, and alleged threats to Israel. Foreign states are normally immune to Canadian civil claims. In 2016, a Canadian judge ordered Iran's non-diplomatic land and bank accounts in Canada to be given to victims of attacks by Lebanese Hezbollah and Palestinian Hamas, both of which are Iranian-backed. Last year, a Canadian court awarded $107 million Canadian dollars to the families of six people killed when Iranian forces shot down a Ukraine International Airlines flight near Tehran in January 2020 following the U.S. killing of top Iranian General Qasem Soleimani. 
Iran maintains the downing of the aircraft was an accident. We have an anti-Iran narrative from Jerusalem Post. Iran is a rogue state that cannot be treated in the usual way by the international community. Besides supporting terror groups throughout the Middle East, Tehran has also been one of Russia's biggest supporters during Moscow's war on Ukraine. Western states have every right to hold Tehran accountable for its actions. The pro-Iran narrative is written by the Tehran Times. Regardless of geopolitical considerations, Iran is a sovereign country that has certain rights within the international order. Neither Canada nor any other state should be allowed to violate Iran's sovereignty. Indeed, the West's aggressions toward Iran only demonstrates its hypocrisy. A Russian general is arrested following the Wagner Rebellion. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian and The Moscow Times. Russian General Sergei Sorovkin has reportedly been arrested in connection with the short-lived Wagner Rebellion over the weekend, according to multiple reports over the past day. The Moscow Times, who first reported the alleged arrest on Wednesday, cited two anonymous officials from Russia's defense ministry in making the report, with one source stating that the alleged arrest was connected to the actions of Wagner boss Yevgeny Prigozhin. Apparently, Sorovkin chose Prigozhin's side during the uprising, the source said. The other report came from the Financial Times on Thursday. The publication said it spoke to three officials who are familiar with the matter. It comes as the New York Times, citing Western intelligence sources, reported on Wednesday that Sorovkin had prior knowledge of the Wagner Rebellion. However, the sources said their information could not confirm whether or not Sorovkin was personally involved in the plot. Sorovkin, who formerly led the Kremlin's campaign in Ukraine before being moved to head Russian aerospace forces, was last seen in public on Saturday. A day earlier, he released a video calling on Wagner to ditch its mutiny attempt. Meanwhile, Russia's defense ministry, alongside other Russian officials, has yet to publicly comment on the reports of the military leader's alleged arrest. Thanks for those facts, Scott. We'll start these spins with a pro-establishment narrative from CNN. As the dust continues to settle after Wagner's rebellion over the weekend, questions will linger on in Russia about its military leadership and whether they are in fact loyal to Russian President Putin. The consequences of this mutiny are far from over. And the pro-Russia narrative from TASS. Given the events of the last week, no doubt there are many unanswered questions. However, reports that General Sorovkin knew of the mutiny beforehand are pure speculation. The Kremlin has nothing to say on this. And there's another nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 50% chance that Vladimir Putin will cease to hold office of President of Russia by September 2025. Australia and the Solomon Islands will review their security pact. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Radio Free Asia, Al Jazeera, The Straits Time, Australian Financial Review, The Print, and the Fiji Broadcasting Corporation. Concluding his two-day visit to the Solomon Islands, Australian Defence Minister Richard Marles on Thursday offered to extend the presence of Australian troops and police in the country amid growing cooperation between China and the Pacific nation. Following a meeting with Marles, Solomon Islands Prime Minister Manessa Sogavare on Wednesday called for an overhaul of the Solomon Islands-Australia Security Pact to meet the changing security challenges of both countries, the Prime Minister's office said. 
The bilateral security treaty between Australia and the Solomon Islands dates back to 2017 and allows for Australian police and defense forces to deploy quickly to the Solomon Islands if needed and with the agreement of both countries. On Thursday, Marles confirmed that that the security agreement would be updated and offered to extend the Australian-led Solomon Islands International Assistance Forces mandate beyond 2023 to support the Pacific Nation's police force. In addition to Australia, which is a major aid donor and maintains decades-long security ties with the Solomon Islands, the SIAF includes Fijian and New Zealand police forces that were deployed to the Solomon Islands in 2021 to help end anti-government protests. In 2022, Sogavare signed a security pact with China, with Chinese police playing a growing role in training and equipping the Solomon Islands police. Beijing also pledged to assist local police during the China-funded Pacific Games in Honiara in November. Thanks for that rundown, Melissa. We have a Narrative A from Foreign Policy. In the context of the U.S.-China regional geopolitical rivalry, the fact that Australia, a close ally of Washington and the Solomon Islands, will renew their security pact is another stage victory for the U.S., Although Beijing signed its first-ever security agreement with the Solomon Islands in the South Pacific last year, recent regional developments suggest that Washington, through its regional allies, is outperforming Beijing on security. If the U.S. now also adopts a competitive economic strategy, it might win the strategic race against China. Narrative B comes from Solomon Star News. With all the geopolitical considerations, what's best for the people is often not addressed. Given the internal security problems that the Solomons have faced since independence in 1978, the government had to look abroad for support, which also led to the signing of security agreements with Australia and China. Moving forward, however, Honiara needs to leverage existing security treaties to build its own capacity in order to reduce dependence on external forces and avoid becoming a pawn in the competition between the West and China. The UK's spy cops inquiry finds Met Police's undercover tactics were unjustified. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Telegraph, The Independent, The Guardian, Sky News, The National, and BBC News. Retired senior judge Sir John Midding has concluded in an interim report for the undercover policing inquiry published Thursday that tactics used by the UK's Special Demonstration Squad, or SDS, were not justified and the unit should have been disbanded earlier. Though conceding that long-term infiltration into left-wing and anarchist groups contributed to controlling public order in London, Midding stressed this could have been achieved by less intrusive means. After scrutinizing the activities of the SDS between 1968 and 1982, Midding found that undercover policing was justified only in three groups, including Sinn Féin, on the grounds that they potentially posed a threat to the safety of the state. This is the first report to emerge from the public inquiry set up in 2015 by then-Homeland Secretary Theresa May amid scandals over undercover cop strategies, such as women being deceived into sexual relationships, stealing the identities of dead children, and spying on justice campaigns. Between 1968 and 2010, 139 police spies reportedly infiltrated more than 1,000 mainly left-wing and progressive political groups, reportedly with the consent of the highest levels of government and funding from the Home Office. 
The full findings, extending to at least 2010, are expected to be published by 2026. It remains unclear whether the Metropolitan Police still carry out undercover operations into disruptive protest groups. Those were the facts, and here's an establishment-critical narrative from Declassified UK. This was a major scandal that revealed the true nature of British law enforcement. Had it not been for the fearless efforts of those who were victimized over the past 40 years, the Met Police would still be executing an anti-democratic, state-sponsored surveillance system against groups that pose no threat. And the Metropolitan Police themselves offer the pro-establishment narrative. It's important to remember that police tactics have been reformed several times over the years, and although a few rotten apples were engaging in damaging behavior, most officers were properly and lawfully performing their duties. This inquiry will be taken into advisement for making further reforms. Well, you know what they say about rotten apples. You just don't know they're rotten until you take a big bite inside. Is that what they say about rotten apples? I That's what I say about rotten oh, apples. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I thought they said <laughs> one rotten apple spoils the bunch, right? Oh, sure, sure. A, I think an apple expels some sort of, like, gas. You know, like, apple ba- bags of apples have holes in them, if you'll notice? Right, right. There's, there's like, I think it's, like, methyl gas or some... I, I don't know what the gas is. I'm not a scientist, but... Apples naturally expel a certain gas that ripens other apples. That's why, like, if you want to ripen a fruit, you, like, put it in a bag and you roll it up and you're supposed to, like, seal it in the bag if you want your avocados to get ripe. Right. They'll get riper faster if you seal them up. So, yeah, uh, a bad apple gives off more of that gas and spoils the rest of the apples. So if you have a bad apple, you're supposed to throw them away, which I think is what that saying is saying, you know, if you have a bad police officer, get rid of them or else they'll make more bad police officers. Right. Yeah. Because but, they'll just spread their gas all but over But you could also, other. yeah. Or you could just take a bite into this police officer and find out. That's your method. My kids eat a lot. of You guys must go through apples like crazy too. We it's do. Just like, yeah. Yeah. My son is into, is learning, like really practicing cutting things. And we have to, he's mm. very, um, he's very, uh, 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 stubborn for lack okay. of better words. So, Go on. Yes. So, you know, he's got it and he's going to, he's going to do it his way and he's going to learn his way. And luckily it's, you know, it's children's butter knife, but he's like cutting into his hand, you know, yeah, like the apple with the hand behind it. And we're like, no, let me show you. He's like, no, yeah, this is You're how you to, do it, mom. I know. Supposed to tuck those fingies, buddy. Use those knuckles. Yeah. Yeah. Like p- at least put it on the table. Yeah. And then, yeah, yeah. One of the things in learning knife skills is you often want to make a flat surface, like cut the apple in half. Like for real, you're supposed to like, or like cut the bottom off a potato. Right. You don't want that rocking around. Right. So then if you just cut the very bottom off the potato, then you can actually get to work. Before you even get to work, you got to make it so you don't cut your hand off. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a, uh, that's a tip. Step one. Tip for all you kids out there. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Don't cut your hand off. Yep. Uh, you know what's really dangerous is those mandolins. They used to be on oh TV. God. You would, you know, you run your hand back and forth over a razor blade until uh, until you chop the tip of your you finger chop off. Your which hand off. will yeah. happen yeah. if you use a mandolin. It's only a the, matter of time. That being said, there really is no better way to like cut some a bunch of stuff uniformly thin quickly. Like I can see the appeal. Yep. If, if yeah. I had a dollar for every time, I, I mean, for every person I knew who owned a mandal, who owns a mandolin, they have chopped the tip of their finger. You know what else was really dangerous? I used to work at a, uh, a deli and oh. I mean, don't 
get it twisted. You can lose a limb to a deli slicer, man. Because oh, that man. thing is, it's a huge spinning. You don't see it from far. There's a spinning blade in that thing. It's spinning. A, a super sharp, big circle is spinning. Like a meat saw, right? Yeah, exactly. But it's like it's like a it's like a round razor blade that's spinning. And if you, it's a human, basically a huge automated mandolin. I mean, it's 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 very dangerous. I remember when I worked there. Um, it was a Quiznos actually, but like you have to, you know, we sliced our meats in house. I was the slicer yeah, nice. and, uh, you're supposed to wear like a chain mail glove, but, oh, that's smart. but no one does. Cause it is really annoying to wear a chain mail glove in a non, <laughs> you know, gladiatorial setting. <laughs> if you're not jousting dragons. Yeah. But like, cause it, you know, cause it, you will in that situation, you can like cut your whole hand off. Like it's oh, bad. Man. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. We're the chain mail. Yeah, Just do I, it. and then of course someone in their toasted sandwich does gets a surprise. You know? <laughs> and, uh, excuse me, there's an entire human yeah. hand in my sandwich. I said ham sandwich. Okay, <laughs> nice. Countries condemn a Quran burning in Sweden. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Euro News, BBC News, Al Jazeera, and the Guardian. Officials from multiple countries have issued statements of condemnation in response to Salwan Momika, an Iraqi refugee who fled to Sweden, conducting a protest by stepping on a copy of the Koran and burning several of its pages. Swedish police had given Momika a permit for the protest, which took place Wednesday, the first day of the Islamic holiday Eid al-Adha, in accordance with free speech laws, though they're now investigating it for inciting hatred. Turkish Foreign Minister Hakan Fidan called the protest despicable. Morocco recalled its ambassador to Sweden indefinitely. Iran's foreign ministry called it provocative, ill-considered, and unacceptable. And Saudi Arabia said these hateful and repeated acts cannot be accepted. Egypt, Iraq, Jordan, Kuwait, Yemen, Syria, and Palestine all issued their own condemnations, with the U.S. State Department also saying... What might be legal is certainly not necessarily appropriate. The U.S. also urged Turkey to vote in favor of Sweden's NATO accession. This comes as Turkey has been blocking Sweden from joining NATO, with Momika denying allegations that his protest was an attempt to sabotage the accession. He added that he doesn't want to harm Sweden, but rather protest in front of the mosque in Stockholm and express his opinion about the Koran. Swedish Prime Minister Ulf Kristersson also called the protest legal but not appropriate, with police rejecting similar protests. However, courts have overruled these protest bans on freedom of expression grounds. Thanks for those facts, Melissa. Ahram Online brings us Narrative A. Most Western countries claim they respect different cultures and religions, but several European countries have recently seen an increase in anti-Islam incidents and haven't done enough to stop them. More must be done by these governments to prevent the degradation of Islam or any religion. Narrative B is from CNN. Regardless of whether society agrees with Momika's message, Sweden is a democratic country, and the police must ensure that people can use their constitutional right to demonstrate freedom of expression. Turkey must not base its decision over Sweden's NATO bid on this disgusting but unrepresentative incident. And a cynical narrative from American Renaissance. 
While the burning of a copy of the Quran is obviously a grossly disrespectful act against Islam, there's a double standard at play that can't be ignored. The international community is quick to condemn anti-Islamic acts, as it should, but remains silent over the mistreatment of Russians over the actions of their government. And we have another nerd narrative from the Metaculous folks saying there's a 68% chance that Sweden will join NATO before 2024. And our final story, Canada's wildfire season is the most severe on record. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Axios, Reuters, ABC News, BBC News, and The Washington Post. Canada is officially experiencing the worst fires in its history, burning more than 8.1 million hectares, or 20 million acres. This is 21 times greater than the average over the past 10 years, with 483 current wildfires across Canada generating record levels of carbon emissions. This year's wildfire tally has already surpassed the entire year of 1995, with the peak of the season still to come. The carbon stored in Canada's northern boreal forest is approximately 200 billion tons, on par with decades of carbon emissions on a global scale. As the forests burn, they become further vulnerable to new fires and negatively affect global warming. Scientists have even observed instances of fire-generated thunderstorms in Canada this summer, a sign of fires burning at a high intensity. As wildfires continue to burn in Canada, smoke has been plummeting into the U.S. The smoke has led to significantly degraded air quality throughout North America and even reached across the Atlantic to Europe. Earlier in June, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau characterized Canada's 2023 wildfire season as unprecedented. Thank you for those terrifying facts, Scott. We'll begin this round with a narrative A from The Guardian. Climate change is wreaking havoc in Canada. Wildfires are becoming more intense and even speeding up global warming, creating a dangerous feedback loop. This year's fires have already broken all records, releasing more than 600 million tons of carbon dioxide since May, more than half of Canada's yearly emissions. This is a dangerous aspect of our current climate crisis. And Narrative B comes from NBC News. While climate change is likely a factor in these wildfires, the best way to deal with this is to design preventative measures to shrink their scope as much as possible. One potential solution is to turn dead trees into biomass energy before they ignite. Governments should invest in turning these trees into wood chips, which, besides preventing future fires, can also be burned and used to produce heat and electricity. Better forest management can go a long way in mitigating the worst of these fires. And there's a final nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's an 85% chance that there will be at least 2 degrees Celsius of global warming by 2100. It makes me feel really small, which is dangerous. So we, we actually were talking off the air a couple weeks ago about the uh, impact that the individual action has on the greater whole and I actually, I, I don't know if you remember that conversation, but I actually feel I bad about what I said Aww. and you, and you stood and you disagreed with me, which I liked. And you're, I think you're right that, uh, you know, I said something about the, it, the small action that someone does doesn't make that big of a difference. And I was kind of messing around, but it made me feel bad to say, and I was glad that you disagreed. So thank you for that. Hey, you're welcome. And uh, a very wise man uh, once told me, 
you know, if if there's no chance of something succeeding uh, and you figure, well, I'm not going to do anything. Well, that's a surefire way of that thing not succeeding. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, June 30th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download our app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Thank you.